continue this study through the life of David. Last week, we spent a lot of time examining the aftermath in David's life, particularly of Saul and Jonathan's death. We were focused on how David responded to Saul's death in particular, and that particular study covered portions of of 2 Samuel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 9. We kind of spread out in a shotgun approach to seeing how Saul's death impacted David's life. Tonight we turn our attention to the fifth chapter of 2 Samuel, because we're going to examine the rise of David to king of Israel. Now, in the aftermath of Saul's death, we discovered in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel how David was anointed king of Judah, and he reigned from Hebron, a town in southern Israel that is smack in the middle of the territory of the tribe of Judah. And we also saw, if you remember, that according to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, that Saul's military commander, a guy named Abner, upon Saul's death, went and got Saul's lone surviving son named Ishbosheth and took him to a town called Mahanaim on the east side of the Jordan River and established his kingdom there. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 2, what you have is the off-overlooked original divided kingdom. We don't refer to it as such, but that was the status of Israel for at least two years, up to seven years. Because what you have for two years is Ishbosheth reigning from Mahanaim as king over Israel and David as king over Judah. Now, J- David will reign as king over Judah for seven and a half years from the town of Hebron. For seven and a half years, he's just king of Judah. For two of those years, we know Ishbosheth was king of Israel. For the remaining five and a half, I don't know what's going on in Israel, to be honest. Because those are the dates that we have, the time frames that we're given. But the day came for David to take his rightful place as king over all of Israel, and that day comes in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So if you look at this map, just to give you an idea, you can see on the, the bottom, uh, darkish, the darker brown coloring represents David's kingdom. You can see a starred city down there towards the bottom part. Oh, wait, I have a, there we go. This area that's a little darker shade is David's territory with the tribe of Judah. Here is Hebron, the town from which David reigned. Up here, the greenish shade represents the territory over which Ishbosheth reigned. And you can see over here on the east side of the Jordan River, there's a little starred city, Mahanaim. That's where it's believed to have been located. This represents the scenario between 2 Kings chapter 1 and 2 Kings chapter 5 of how Israel was operating. Now we get to 2 Kings chapter 5 and we come to the first verse and let's read through verse 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. 
At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So we now have a scenario where David, though already anointed by God years earlier, is finally recognized by the people as the rightful king on the throne. And so now he reigns over all Israel. And David's going to make three early decisions, three, engage in three early activities that solidify his reign. And real quick, we're going to review those three, and then we're going to focus in on the third. But first thing I want you to notice that David does is his first act as king was to move his capital to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not the center of the Israelite nation up to this point. Saul did not reign from Jerusalem. He had a different city, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but you'll find it, I'm sure. He reigned from a different city. David's going to decide it's time to choose a capital that truly represented his reign over all of Israel. As we've already noted, when he was king over Judah, he reigned from Hebron. Now, if you, if you look at that map again, let me just get back to it real quick. Hebron's right down here in the south. All of this is Israel. So the tribes are spread out over a vast area, and David's capital city is way down there in the south. If he continued to reign from Hebron, guess what? He's distant from so many of the other tribes. And so David makes a decision. We'll start reading in verse 6 and go through verse 9 here of 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we'll see the decision that he ultimately makes. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack, to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the, host, the God of hosts, was with him. Now that's a lot of information. Here is an artistic rendering of Jerusalem in the days of David. David chose Jerusalem for three primary reasons. One, it was politically strategic. David chose Jerusalem because Jerusalem was on the border of Judah, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. It brought him a little bit further north, put him in a more a strategic location as far as to the south of him are his kinsmen, and to the north of him are other tribes. So he's not just in the midst of Judah. He is uh, more accessible to other tribes. So Jerusalem is politically strategic. It's kind of like the choosing of Washington, D.C. as our capital. Prior to that selection, the capital... Uh, was associated with Philadelphia for a time, at least for the Continental Congress, and then uh, New York City for the, the first place where George Washington uh, was set up as president. But when it came time to choose the long-term capital, they chose a location that was on the border of the north and the south, essentially. More in the south, actually, than in the north. 
And, and they did that to make it a little bit more appropriate for all these states that are combining together and have different agendas. That's what's kind of happening with Jerusalem, the selection of Jerusalem. It's strategic in that it's putting uh, David in a location that allows him to govern without bias, or at least without giving the sense of bias towards his kinsmen. <coughs> but David's selection of Jerusalem was also strategic militarily. Jerusalem sits on a, a hill, on, on one of the highest points in the area. But more importantly, it's surrounded by valleys. You can see a couple of valleys named in this artistic rendering. It's kind of like a, 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 the, the hill on which Jerusalem sits is kind of like a finger with a valley on this side and a valley on this side that then meets in a valley here on the end. You have the Kidron Valley here on the eastern side, and you have the uh, Central Valley or Tyropian Valley on the more western side, if you will. You have this nice elevation that is rising out of the valleys that gives you a strategic military point. Not only that, Jerusalem has a well-fed spring right smack dab in the middle of it called the Gihon Spring. That means even in times of being seized, besieged, they have a water source. When they can't exit the walls, they still have access to water, and that means everything. So from a military standpoint, Jerusalem is very strategic. In fact, it was such a strong military position that the Israelites had failed to dispossess the Jebusites of that town. The, up until the days of David, the Jebusites still resided in Jerusalem. They were supposed to be removed. And that means David is also choosing this location, not just because it's strategic militarily, and not just because it's politically strategic, but theologically it's strategic as well. Because he is getting rid of some inhabitants of the land that the Israelites had failed to get rid of when they were supposed to. When Joshua conquered the land, the Jebusites were supposed to be kicked out. They never were. And so David is essentially fulfilling Mosaic law by getting rid of the Jebusites. It's also worth mentioning that it's believed that the hill on which, um, I'm pointing back there like y'all can see this, the hill on which um, Jerusalem is built is associated with Mount Moriah, associated with the location of Abraham's offering of Isaac. And so there's theological significance tied to this city because of its connection to Abraham, uh, the, the terrain's connection to Abraham, and also because the inhabitants were never uh, kicked out as Mosaic law prescribed. And so David is fulfilling something in Mosaic law that had not been fulfilled. So choosing Jerusalem was strategic. That was David's first act. And after he's got hold of Jerusalem, David moves on to his second act as king. And his second act was to remove the Philistines from Israelite land. So if you pick up the reading there in 2 Samuel chapter 5, at verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. 
And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. If you keep reading in verse 22, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to to Gezer. Now, essentially what we have happening here is the Philistines are taking over the valley of Rephaim. Now that means very little to you and I until you see it on a map. On this map, you can see Jerusalem positioned right here, kind of in the center. And this square is blown up for you here. And you can see that along this route coming up from the southwest to Jerusalem is the Valley of Rephaim. See, when the Philistines spread out in the Valley of Rephaim, that means they were spreading out on David's doorstep. They were taking over the land outside David's window. You have to remember, if you go back to the end of 1 Samuel, when Saul is killed and defeated at the battle of Mount Gilboa, all the Israelite men fled. They abandoned their post and they ran home. And what the Philistines did is they took up residence in Israel. And now when they hear that David has become king, they're spreading out more, and they're spreading out closer to David's capital city. And David realizes, all right, it's time to do something about these Philistines. This is God's land that God gave to his people, and these Philistines, these uncircumcised Philistines, are encroaching on it. They don't belong here. It's time to stand up for the Lord and get them out of here. And so David, notice he's inquiring of the Lord, getting permission from the Lord, and he drives the Philistines out twice. So his second act as king was to remove the Philistines from Israelite land. And that brings us to his third act as king. And his third act as king was to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So let's read briefly 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. There is this joyous parade escorting the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to dive deep on this aspect of David's first moves. 
But one thing that's interesting to me about the relocation of the Ark of the Covenant that's easily overlooked is that the Ark is being relocated to Jerusalem, but not the tabernacle. David actually erects a tent in Jerusalem, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 1. He erects a tent especially for the Ark of the Covenant. But the tabernacle and the other furnishings that went into the tabernacle did not come over with the Ark. In fact, you can go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 9, and it's there that we're told the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. Now, at that time is a reference to the events of 1 Chronicles chapter 21. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, David conducts a census of his people and gets in trouble with the Lord because of it, because he wasn't supposed to do that. And it is identified as a sin. And he brings a plague on the Israelites because of his decision to do this. That was the punishment that God brought upon Israel for David's decision. That story is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. The events of moving the Ark of the Covenant are recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, six chapters earlier. So if we have a chronological perspective here in 1 Chronicles, then the moving of the Ark happened several chapters in advance of this statement about the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was still residing in Gibeon when the Ark of the Covenant was relocated. In fact, the tabernacle will still be in Gibeon as opposed to Jerusalem until the temple is built by Solomon. Because if you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, you'll see two references in that chapter to the tabernacle's location in Gibeon. For whatever reason, the Ark of the Covenant will come to Jerusalem, but the tabernacle and the altar of burnt offering and that bronze basin and the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the candelabra, all that stays at Gibeon. But the Ark of the Covenant comes over to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time on, on why the tabernacle is in one location and the Ark of the Covenant's in another because the Bible doesn't seem too concerned about that issue. It will all be consolidated in the temple when Solomon is authorized to construct it. Instead, what I want to spend the rest of our time doing is considering first why the Ark of the Covenant was being relocated. Now, it can be kind of daunting to trace the journey of the Ark of the Covenant. From the time they arrived in the Promised Land, it shifts locations a few times. Originally, the Ark of the Covenant was housed at Shiloh under the supervision of Eli. Shiloh is located right here, approximately. And it was there that the, the uh, tabernacle was originally set up. And Eli, the priest and the judge, was in charge of it. But one day, the Israelites went out to battle the Philistines. Man, the Philistines love to fight the Israelites. And their battle is over here in a town called Ebenezer. And when they went to war, you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when they went to war, the Israelites lost the first battle quite handily. They had 4,000 men perish on the battlefield that day, 
And that evening they gathered together and they said, what went wrong? And the elders of the Israelites said, you know what the problem is? We need the Ark of the Covenant here. Let's send some men back, go get the Ark of the Covenant, and bring it here, and then we'll be victorious. And so some men went back to Shiloh, grabbed the Ark, and brought it out to the battlefield. They did not get Eli's permission, apparently. But Eli, Eli at this stage, was 90-something years old and blind and fat. He wasn't able to do a whole lot. So they take the Ark of the Covenant out to the battle. They think they're going to be victorious. But the Philistines win that day. Win so handedly that the Israelites flee and forget to grab the Ark of the Covenant. How do you forget that? Well, the Philistines find it out on the battlefield and they take it home with them. And so they leave the battlefields of Ebenezer, go uh, travel back to Aphek, and then they take down here to Ashdod. They take the Ark of the Covenant down to Ashdod. It's in Ashdod that they place the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple of their deity, Dagon. The Ark of the Covenant doesn't like being in the temple of Dagon. The Ark of the Covenant makes the statue of Dagon fall over, and on the second time it falls over, it breaks off his hands and his head. They have a decapitated statue in Ashdod. There's also curses brought upon the, the, the citizens of that town. So they say, we got to get this, this thing out of here. They ship it off to Gath, to another Philistine city, the home of Goliath. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant comes to rest on its second stay in Philistine territory. But it brings about curses and plagues on the citizens of Gath as well. Tumors are showing up on everyone. And so the citizens of Gath say it can't stay here, so they send it up to Ekron. Same thing happens there. The hand of the Lord, we're told, was heavy against those citizens. And so in Ekron, they say, we got to get it out of here. Uh, let's just send it back to Israel. And so from Ekron, they, through their own means, decide to load the Ark of the Covenant up onto a cart, attach two milk cows to it, and just let it walk down the road with some gifts that they've prepared for Yahweh. That cart finds its way into the town of Beth Shemesh, right there, stops in a field, and the citizens of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh is an Israelite city, the citizens of that town uh, go out and make sacrifices, and they're taking over care of the ark. They have some Levites there who are going to get it off the cart and do something with it, but apparently like 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh look at the ark and apparently the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark comes true because they just, they're struck. That's the only word that's used, they're struck. Assumedly they died or something of that nature. And so they say in Beth Shemesh, we better get somebody else to handle this thing. And so citizens of Kiriath-Jerim, just a short distance away, are called upon to come take possession of the ark. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 21, that's where we read that the citizens of Kiriath-Jerim are called upon. You get over to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. They come get the ark. They take it back. They set it up in the house of a guy named Abinadab. And they appoint Abinadab's son, Eliezer. Or they, I should say they consecrate Abinadab's son, Eliezer, to be in charge of the ark. And for the next 20 years... That's where the Ark of the Covenant sat, in Kiriath-Jerim, 
on the property of a man named Abinadab under the oversight of his son, Eliezer. Now, one assumption that we have to kind of make is that the household of Abinadab was more than likely from the tribe of Levi. I have not been able to confirm through biblical text that they were of the tribe of Levi, but for them to be able to handle the ark without consequences, that's kind of an inference we must make. So the household of Abinadab is now in the care, has, has the care of the ark. The tabernacle apparently moves from Shiloh to Gibeon at some point. And that's where we find ourselves when we arrive here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And David has decided it's time to move the ark. It's been sitting at Abinadab's for too long. Now, why do you think David felt it important to move the ark at this point? I think there are three good reasons why. And not one is the, may, not one may be the sole reason, but all of them may play a part. I think we should notice that David may have wanted to move the ark to prevent the Philistines from capturing it again. Now, in this process of moving it through the cities of Philistia, and it was only in the Philistine territory for seven months, the Bible tells us, but through this process, it doesn't get that far outside the region of Philistia. It's still pretty close to the borders of Philistine territory. And that's important to consider when you look back on the events that preceded David's desire to remove the ark. Remember, he had set up his capital in Jerusalem. He has pushed the Philistines out of Israelite territory. And in the process of defeating them in the battle, they left all of their little household gods, their little idols out on the battlefield. And what did David do? He picked them all up and disposed of them. David has taken captive all their personal representations of deity, just like they took captive that ark many years earlier when it was left on the battlefield. And it may be that David is concerned of retaliation. I've now taken all of these representations of their deities. Maybe they're going to attack us to try to get our representation of God's presence and destroy it. I mean, obviously, they, they, they know the consequences that come with housing it, but maybe they want to destroy it. So David may have a legitimate concern here. Uh, notice in the text, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 17, the, the Philistines really weren't concerned about David as long as he was reigning in Judah alone. They weren't really concerned when his capital was Hebron. But as soon as David becomes king over Israel, we were told that the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel all the Philistines went up to search for David. They want to fight David. Well, David handily defeats them this time. And then if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, and verse 21, you read about how they left their idols in the battlefield, and David and his men carried them away. But then it's interesting to me, when it comes time for David to move the Ark of the Covenant, he doesn't just get the handful of men he needs to carry the Ark and go over there to... Kiriath-Jerim to get it. You look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. He took 30,000 men. 
30,000 people go with David to fetch the ark. Do you know what that sounds like to me? Sounds like he's taking an army. Sounds like he's taking protection to escort the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. As if in his mind there's a possibility of an attack. And so it may be that David's decision to move the Ark of the Covenant was anticipating retaliatory action by the Philistines because he had taken their representations of deity. And we know the Philistines have already done this once. Maybe they would try to do this again. That might be one reason David chose to move the Ark. But David may have also chosen to move the Ark to demonstrate God's involvement in his reign. See, during Saul's reign, the Ark was kept as has been mentioned in the city of Kiriath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab. And as a result of that location, the emphasis on the tabernacle as the place of worship dwindled under Saul's leadership. In fact, the last mention of the tabernacle during the tenure of Saul is in conjunction with Samuel's call in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 3. You actually don't hear about the tabernacle during King Saul's reign. And the last mention of the Ark of the Covenant was in conjunction with a Philistine battle to which Saul commanded the Ark be brought in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now this is, this is after it's been recovered from Philistine captivity. This is after it's been housed at Kiriath-Jerim. And Saul's going to bring it out to battle again. And they are victorious. But 1 Samuel chapter 14 was the last time it got mentioned until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's also worth mentioning that during the reign of Saul, he ordered the execution of 85 priests in the city of Nob a city that was called the city of priests, according to 1 Samuel chapter 22. So you don't hear about the tabernacle all the days of Saul. The Ark of the Covenant only makes one appearance during the reign of Saul, and that was before Saul's demise as king. And Saul goes on to kill 85 priests. And the point of these observations is to show that during the reign of Saul, God ceased to be at the center of the nation's activities. Maybe maybe God's rejection of Saul was visibly demonstrated by the absence of God's symbol of representation, the Ark of the Covenant, from Saul's reign. Samuel, the, the last judge, the priest, he's going to distance himself, he's going to separate himself from Saul, And the tabernacle ceased to be in operation. And the Ark of the Covenant was nowhere near Saul's capital. Maybe all that points to the fact that God's not a part of Saul's reign anymore. And as we enter 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has officially been made king over the entire nation. And early in his reign, he decides that the Ark of the Covenant needed to be brought to his capital city. Maybe he realized that there was a need to show that he's aligning himself with God as leader of this community and that the converse, God, 
God is reigning through David. Maybe being a man after God's own heart, David realized that in order for his reign to be an extension of God's reign, then his throne needed to be backed by God's throne, represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And what better way to demonstrate that than by putting the Ark of the Covenant in the same city as his capital? Maybe that's another reason he wanted to move it there. But there may be a third reason. Maybe David wanted to move the Ark to Jerusalem because he saw the benefits, the blessings associated with it. There's one thing we haven't read yet, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. After David, David attempted to move the ark, and that didn't go so well, so instead of bringing it to Jerusalem, he had to make a pit stop and leave it in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. And according to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and verse 12, it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. David hears that the guy's house in in, in which he had placed the Ark of the Covenant temporarily was being blessed because the Ark was there. Maybe David wants those blessings in Jerusalem. That might sound self-centered. That might sound like David is, is selfish and jealous here. But that might not be the case. Maybe David did not so much want his household to receive the blessings that Obed-Edom received. Maybe what he really wanted was for those blessings to be passed on to the entire nation. And by placing the Ark of the Covenant in the capital city, that would be the means through which the blessings of the Ark would, be, would trickle down throughout the entire Israelite nation. Maybe the man after God's own heart wants God's blessings to rain down on all of Israel, not just his own family. And the way to achieve that was to bring the ark to Jerusalem. See, David had plenty of reason to relocate the ark. And so he sets about that process. He had a lot of good reasons for relocating the ark to Jerusalem. And while his intentions were good, his execution was initially bad it will take david two attempts to get the ark to jerusalem but why was the relocation of the ark initially a failure that's the question we really want to spend our time with for the rest of our evening See, we find out that david's first attempt at relocating the ark was not done according to god's instructions that's why it's not going to succeed to us, how the ark is transported seems like something that shouldn't be that big of a deal. But, but because the ark represented God's presence among his people, he wanted it to be moved with respect and honor, a recognition of the holiness that was associated with it. And so God was very specific about the transportation of the ark of the covenant in Mosaic law. He was specific about the attachments to the ark that would make it transportable. You can go over to Exodus chapter 25, and from verse, um, really verse 11 through 15, or verse 10 through 15, you can see instructions related to the craftsmanship of the Ark of the Covenant. 
But in particular, if you look at verse 12, you'll see that the ark would be constructed with four rings of gold attached to its four feet with two rings on each side. And then according to verse 13, two poles would be made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold, and they would be inserted into the rings on the sides of the ark so that it could be carried. And according to verse 15, those poles would never be removed. In other words, the ark had a permanent addition to it that made it transportable. Rings were attached, poles were made, poles were installed through the rings, and the poles were never to be removed. So God had very specific instructions, instructions regarding the, the technique, the uh, infrastructure, if you will, for transporting the ark. But God was also very specific about who would transport the ark and how it would be transported. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8, we find out that the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant. God specifically chose a tribe and even a particular clan within that tribe, we'll find out, that was, in, that was responsible for moving the ark of the covenant as well as the other tabernacle furniture. And according to Numbers chapter 7 and verse 9, we find out that those pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, as well as the Ark of the Covenant, had to be carried on the shoulders of the sons of Kohath. The Kohathites, that's the clan uh, within the tribe of Levi that was responsible for transport, and they were specifically supposed to carry this artifact and those like it at the tabernacle on their shoulders using the poles. And God also was specific about maintaining the holiness of the ark. In his instructions in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 5, we find out that when it was time for the tabernacle to be moved during the wilderness wanderings, the priests were to take down the veil from the tabernacle and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And in verse 15 of Numbers chapter 4, we learn that those carrying the ark were instructed to not touch it, lest they die. God was very specific about the handling of the Ark of the Covenant. Now look again at the, how David's initial Ark relocation process took place. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2-4 through four in particular. And David arose and went, up, went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah. And, Grant, and I need to let you know, Baal Judah is another name for Kiriath-Jerom, we find out. But Baal Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Now, what's the problem with this strategy? Hopefully it's obvious. David has decided to transport the ark on a cart that was being pulled by oxen. That's not the way God instructed the Israelites to move the Ark of the Covenant. God had instructed the Israelites to have Levites carry the Ark on their shoulders using the poles that were slid through the ringlets that were attached to the feet of the Ark. At best, David is modeling his move after the way the Philistines did it back in 1 Samuel chapter 6. In verse 10 and 11, we find out that the Philistines, when they wanted to get rid of the Ark, they put it on a cart towed by a couple of milk cows and let it travel, find its way back to Israel. 
David is handling the artifact that represents the presence of God the way that the uncircumcised Philistines handled it, not the way that God prescribed it. Now look at what happens in verse 6 and 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So not only did David fail to consult or fail to follow the prescribed method for correct transportation, but when he used an alternative method, it endangered the ark, number one, because when the oxen stumbled, apparently the ark got discompobulated on the cart and started to fall, or started to move at the very least. And Uzzah, assumedly with good intentions, reached out to steady the ark, touched it, and died. And the whole situation comes down to a failure to keep God's command. If the Levites had been carrying the ark on their shoulders, the transport of the ark would have been less risky and unlikely to result in a situation that would have endangered the ark, or Uzzah for that matter. I want to point this out. One thing that we have emphasized about David throughout this study from start to finish, or start till now, is that he frequently consulted God before he moved. Every time David sought God's guidance, his endeavor was successful. But those few times that David failed to seek God's guidance, he encountered difficulty, or he got himself in a little bit of trouble. This is important to bring up because back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the chapter before this, actually just a few verses before this, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 5 and look at verse 19 and verse 23, we're told that David inquired of the Lord twice there in 2 Samuel chapter 5. He inquired of the Lord both times he went to battle against the Philistines, just moments, or verses, I should say, before the transport of the ark. We read about David inquiring of the Lord. The first instance... God tells him to go. The second instance, God says, wait, I've got an alternative. But in both cases, David did exactly as God told him, and David was successful. Not once in this ark relocation endeavor does David consult the Lord, and it would have been so easy for him to do that, because numbered among his entourage was Abiathar the priest. He was the lone survivor of Saul's massacre of the priests at Nob that I mentioned earlier. Abiathar had been consulted by David before because Abiathar had that ephod. And David would consult with him and, and use the technique that God had instructed the priests to use to receive feedback from God. But Abiathar, as a priest, would know he's of the tribe of Levi. He's of the descendants of Aaron. More than likely, he's well-versed in the law of God. More than likely, he knows the correct procedures for the transport of the ark. He would have been a good one to go to and say, hey, we're about to do this. Can you tell us how? But David, nowhere in the text is said to have done that. 
But what we do know is that somewhere along the way, David managed to learn how to correctly transport the ark. We know that because we can go to 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and discover the success of the second attempt to transport the ark. You'll notice in verse 1 and 2 of 1 Chronicles chapter 15 that David prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him. If you get down to verse 11, we're told that David summoned the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. There's that guy that I mentioned. And the Levites, Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Elel, and Minadab. And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. I don't know what happened between the first attempt and the second attempt. The Bible doesn't spell that out for us. But obviously when it came time for the second attempt to move the ark, David found out the correct prescription for that. Because here in 1 Chronicles 15, he's spelling it out. He's saying, all right, only Levites can move it. You've got to use the poles, and that's how we're going to do this. And we're going to do it right because that's the way Moses said to do it. And that's the rule. Somewhere along the way, David skipped the rule the first time, discovered the rule prior to the second time, and he was able to be successful then. Now, unfortunately, Uzzah died in the process. Some of that guilt falls on David because David should have ordered the transport of the ark to be in collaboration with Scripture. Some of that fault probably falls on Uzzah. It's possible that his family was of Levitical descent because they housed the ark. They may have been specifically selected because they were descendants of Levi to keep that ark in their, on their property for 20 years. The text does not specifically identify Uzzah or his brother Eliezer, or his father Abinadab as Levites or as priests, but it's quite possible. And if they were Levites, then guess what? Uzzah knew better. And it's because David, and most likely Uzzah, knew better that they faced such harsh consequences. Craig had a fascinating and wonderful sermon on Sunday where he talked about how Hezekiah, in Hezekiah's day, some came and observed Passover not as prescribed. And Hezekiah prayed for the Lord to forgive them of that, and the Lord did. Here, they're transporting the ark, not as prescribed, and consequences were met. And I can't help but think that the major difference is, in Hezekiah's day, they went so long without the knowledge of the Lord. 
without the knowledge of the Lord's will, without understanding the requirements. David had the requirements and ignored them. For me, I think that's the chief difference between the two. And with that being said, I want to make two quick applications with whatever time we have left. First thing I want you to understand that we can learn from this episode in David's life is that good intentions are not more important than proper execution. All of David's reasons for relocating the ark are good, they're justifiable, they're even admirable. That's important to note because nowhere does the Bible criticize or condemn David for wanting to move the ark. God does not disapprove of what David is trying to do. But God does take exception to the way he goes about doing it. And this should be no surprise to us because the exact same thing happened to King Saul. I don't know how many times I've drawn a comparison between David and King Saul, particularly what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when Saul failed to follow exactly the order to annihilate the Amalekites. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 and 23, that Samuel, upon discovering Saul's failure, comes to him and says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. The lesson for us is that doing things God's way matters, especially when you are knowledgeable of God's way. That's why we're so adamant that one needs to be baptized in order to receive salvation. That's why... Uh, we worship in the style that we do without musical instruments. It's why our congregation is autonomously overseen by shepherds who are among us. But let's make this more personal. In what areas of your spiritual walk are you emphasizing good intentions over proper execution? Is it in your service to others? Are your good intentions there? but not your execution? In your evangelistic efforts, are your good intentions present, but no execution? What about your attendance to worship and Bible class? Does it, do you have good intentions, but no execution? Your personal study habits, your prayer life, your responsibility to spiritually prepare your children, your responsibility to submit to your mate, your responsibility to honor your parents, your stewardship responsibilities. Do you have good intentions? And do you have proper execution as well? Let's remember James chapter 4 and verse 17. It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's the ultimate message of this episode. David knew the right thing to do, but he didn't do it. I also want you to consider this other lesson we can take from David's story here. If at first you don't succeed, return to the instructions. No, it's not if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. No, no, return to the instructions. And us men are very good at not doing this. 
David failed initially when he attempted to relocate the ark because he didn't follow God's directions as presented in Mosaic law. He then succeeded on his second attempt because he specifically ordered that the transport of the ark be done according to God's directions. As I said, we don't specifically know what transpired between these two attempts to cause David to change protocol, but since the first attempt demonstrated no familiarity with God's ark-moving instructions, and the second did, I think it's fair to conclude that in between these attempts, David consulted God's word in some fashion. So in the face of failure, it appears that David went back to read the instructions so he would be successful the next time. See, that makes me think of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which is a passage most of us are familiar with, where it declares that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the content of God's Word possesses the information we need to succeed in God's eyes. If some area of our life is experiencing failure, the best thing we can do is return to His Word, return to His instruction manual, and use it to determine whether or not we've done what He has instructed us to do. So think about it this way. Is your financial situation failing? Go back and read what God has to say about giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Go back and read what God has to say about debt in passages like Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7 and Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Go back and read what God has to say about contentment in Philippians chapter 4. The love of money in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and financial anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. And then ask yourself whether or not you're doing things God's way. Is your marriage failing? Go back and reacquaint yourself with what God's Word has to say about your role in the marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Go back and reacquaint yourself with what God's Word has to say about fulfilling your mate in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Pleasing your mate in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Go back and reacquaint yourself with what God's Word has to say about reconciling with one another in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. And then ask yourself whether or not you're doing things God's way. Is your faith failing? Go back and study what God has to say about assembling with the body of believers in Hebrews chapter 10. Go back and study what God has to say about distancing yourself from sin in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and James chapter 4. Go back and study what God has to say about prayer and personal study habits in passages like Philippians chapter 4, Matthew chapter 6, and 2 Timothy chapter 2. And then ask yourself whether or not you're doing things God's way. Remember what David said in Psalm chapter 119 and 105. Your lamp is a word to my feet and a light to my path. If something's not working, don't just try, try again. Go back and read the instructions. See, David is one of the most important individuals in the Bible. If you were to make a list of the 100 most important people in the Bible, I would bet that David would at least crack the top five. And here's what fascinates me about David. What God remembers most about David is not his courage in the face of a giant, his endurance in the face of opposition, his wisdom in handling royal affairs, 
but his willingness to do the will of God. Paul said in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, that the Lord raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. David is identified as a man after God's own heart because despite his excursions away from God's will at times, he always returned and to the best of his ability attempted to follow the will of God even in the smallest details of his life. So tonight we're challenged by the example of David to do things God's way. Let's bow forward a prayer as we close out. Our Heavenly Father, help us to be better. Help us, Lord, to be aware of your will and to do your will. Help us not to be able to help us not to be comfortable choosing ignorance. And help us not to be comfortable choosing only good intentions. Help us, Lord, to be people who want to know your will, and help us, Lord, to be people who want to execute your will. Forgive us of those times that we haven't done that. Help us to be more like the man after your own heart. It's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.